Well, good morning. Welcome back, for, and some of you for the very first time. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just catch you up a little bit on the story and a little bit on our series. So our series is called Shipwreck, and we're looking at the different ships that are in your life and how it is that they um, were all wrecked by some moment right in the very beginning of time. Now, we started a couple weeks ago on our launch, and we started in Genesis chapter 1, right there at the very beginning. And we saw God, right? God who is creator, and God who created all things. And we talked about who he is. And then week two, we saw that not only did he create all things, but he created us, you and me, humanity. He created us male and female. And we looked at what it meant for us to be created in God's image. And for the purpose of the series, we said that you and I were created in what we said is ship shape, right? And we began to look at, starting last week, what those ships are in our lives. And so the very first ship that we came up against was relationship, relationship. And we saw the very first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And we looked at that marriage and what happened inside of it and how it was sunk afterwards and how it is that Jesus was able to restore marriages. Now, afterwards, I was talking with um, somebody that was sitting here and they're like, now I'm not a young person. They said, but if I was, said that message might have scared me away from dating, from getting married and all that has to go with that. Now, please hear me. All right. I didn't want to dissuade you from getting married. All right. That's not my goal and desire as much as it is for us to know and to understand that a marriage that is built on nothing less than Jesus will sink. Right. It won't survive. It won't be able to stand the test of time. In fact, a marriage will look like the rest of the world's marriages. And that is not what God intended for our marriage to look like. He intended for it to be a reflection back of who it was that he created us to be. So today we're going to continue on and we're going to look at the next ship, right? So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to start in verse 7. It says this. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Let's pray. Father, you have some really powerful things, I think, to say to us today from this passage. And I know that we've got some distractions of some fuzz coming from the microphone and um, 
Father, I, I know that we can allow those sorts of things to, um, to keep us from focusing on what it is that you want us to hear. But I pray more than anything right now that, Father, we would clear that away, whether it's baggage that we brought into the room with us or maybe it's something that is looming when we walk back out of the room. Father, that in this moment right now, that we would be present and that we'd experience your presence. We'd hear from you, Father, that we'd respond to you. Just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, growing up, I was a Bo Jackson fan, right? Some of you, how many of you in the room know who Bo Jackson is? Let's just, okay, a few more of you than I expected. All right, very good. So it's okay. Those of you who don't know who Bo Jackson is, that's really okay. Um, but you just need to know I was a massive Bo Jackson fan, all right? In fact, I collected every single Bo Jackson card that I could possibly find, whether it was a baseball card, a football card, or um, a non-card of something, I had all of them. I had his posters on my wall, right? He had this one amazing poster where he had shoulder pads on and a baseball bat, and he was like flexing with, a, and that was awesome, right? Had it right there on, on, on my wall. Um, in fact, I was such a Bo Jackson fan that I became a Kansas City Royals fan, right? I was such a Bo Jackson fan. I was an Oakland Raiders fan. I don't hold that against me. All right, please. In fact, when Bo Jackson left the Kansas City Royals and went to become a, a, a Chicago White Sox, I became a White Sox fan. And then, and then when he left the White Sox to become a California Angel, I became a Yankees fan. <laughs> Listen, there's a line, people, all right? And at the time, the California Angels were my line, right? But I was a huge Bo Jackson fan. I would run home after school, turn on the TV in order to watch Bo Jackson playing baseball. I would go to the games. I actually got to go see him play in Kansas City. I worshiped Bo Jackson. Now, I wasn't the only one that worshiped him. Right? There was a massive craze of all kinds of kids, men, women, boys, girls, all across the nation that were huge Bo Jackson fans and worshipped him with me. Now, not everybody worshipped him. Some people had other things that they worshipped, right? There were girls that I knew that had sync posters up, right? And they were like, oh, he is so hot. I just want him. It's true. They did. Others of them, they were Zach and Kelly fans, right? from Saved by the Bell, and they would have all the magazines and the cutouts of, of those two and that cute couple, and they just wanted to be in proximity to these great, or at least in our minds, these great people, right? We liked them. We wanted them to like us. We wanted them to know who we are. Now, if you've been a Jesus follower for very long, hearing me say the word worship probably grated on you just a little bit. Because if you've been a Christian for very long, in fact, you can even talk to people who are not Jesus followers, and they know that the very first commandment is, you should worship no one else but God. 
And the second, they might even know that, that it says, look, you shouldn't even have like an idol, something that you've carved out or made into an image that you worship instead of worshiping me. But the truth is, if I gave each one of you a few minutes to think back in your life, you could come up with a story that is not much different than mine. Somebody or something that you probably worshiped in your life. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I were designed to worship. And I think at some point the question becomes, what is worship? What is worship? Now typically when we say that word, we begin to think about what Terry was doing a moment ago and the singing that goes on. And sometimes we even begin to associate worship with like a time, 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and a place for us inside of a gymnasium, for other people, maybe inside of a church. You know, Jesus had an encounter with a woman at a well, and this woman she had had several failed marriages, which I find absolutely ironic that we're going to talk about this word worship. And here it was, this woman who had already given evidence of her first ship being sunk. And so Jesus has this encounter and Jesus tells her some secrets about her life. And she recognizes what's going on. And she says this to him. It's in John chapter four. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, you've just said something to me about me that nobody else could possibly know, especially a stranger who walks up. And then she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's concerned about it being a specific place. And Jesus looked at her and he said this. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from, or really because of, the Jews. And then I want you to listen to this verse. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And if you've got this verse pulled up, just circle it because I love this. This is my favorite part of it. It says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, that woman was obviously confused a little bit about what worship is. She uh, didn't understand that it, or she thought in her mind that it was constrained to a specific place. And depending on who you were, right? that it might depend on where it is that you should go and how that argument should, um, should go forth. But she did understand something right about, I told you, it's all messing up. I don't understand what's going on with it. Terry, do you know what's going on? Do I need to just switch mics? No, step back. Step, step backwards? Way back here. All right, let's see if that works. Did it work? No. How about now? All right, we'll try. If it pops again, it's not a happy microphone today. He's bringing me a different microphone. 
Give me on back there, I am. So, but she does understand something correctly about worship. Here's what she understood. She understood that worship is designed. Worship is designed for us to encounter God. Worship is designed for us to encounter the very presence of God. You see, Jesus um, corrected her thought about where the encounter would take place. But he said to her that the hour is coming. And actually what he says to her right after that is he says, the hour is now here. It's standing right here in front of you. And that, that is what true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth understand. So true worship is designed to bring us into the presence of God. Now Adam and Eve existed and lived in the very presence of God. In fact, we find out in uh, chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, that Adam was taken and placed into the garden, into the very presence of God. Now, the thing that is amazing about this word um, placed that's used right there is that that verb was used every single time that they would talk about placing something into the temple. Right? So then they talked about the showbread that was there. It was placed into the temple. And it's the same word that's used here of Adam. He was placed into the garden. He was placed into the presence of God. What an absolutely fantastic and fascinating thing. Now look back with me at verse 8 for just a second. Verse 8 says this, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I know there's more to it, but we're going to stop right there. Now the idea of God walking among them, it literally may have meant that God was walking there. Right? That's a possibility about what this could have been. There's another possibility that exists that, um, that we like to talk about, and it's a theophany, it's a really big word, that means that it's the appearance of Jesus. And so Jesus was the one walking literally in the garden with them. And there are theophanies throughout the Old Testament that we attribute to being Jesus. But it doesn't matter which one of those two, it doesn't matter if you don't like either one of those. At the end of the day, what we understand is, is that God's presence was being communicated by this idea of him walking in the garden. In fact, when you check, just flip a couple pages over to chapter five, we find a man named Enoch. And Enoch is said to be walking with the Lord. And his walk and his connection and his intimacy was so great with the Lord that he walked straight into heaven with him and never died. He was in the presence of God. A couple weeks we're going to talk about as we wrap this series up, the story of Noah. And in chapter 6 we find out that Noah was the only one who was upright and walking with the Lord in his day. He was the only one who was experiencing the presence of God. 
And so I want you to understand that worship is designed for us to encounter and to experience the very presence of God. In Leviticus, God said this. He said to the Israelites, who were his chosen people, he said, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. What was God promising to them? He was promising them his presence. He would ever be with them. Psalms 147, verse 11 says this. It says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who worship him. The Lord takes pleasure in those who worship him. Now, Adam and Eve were in the presence of God in the garden, but their being there brought pleasure to God. So it's not only about God's presence that we have in worship, but worship is also designed to bring God pleasure. He pleasures in our worship. In fact, check this out. The word Eden, if you were to translate it straight into English, it means pleasure. They were put into the garden of pleasure. Why? For the purpose of giving God pleasure to be in his presence to worship. That's what they were there for. What an absolutely mind-blowing thought. That they were there in this cyclical nature of experiencing God and then bringing pleasure to him. And by the way, when you come into and you encounter the presence of God, there is only one response. And the Bible is clear about it over and over again. In fact, Moses the guy who wrote this text for us here in Genesis, he asks God to encounter God's presence. In chapter 33, it's a great story. And God says to him, oh, my presence is so great that you can't even see me face to face. And so I'll cover you in the cleft of a rock and you can just see my back. But what we often neglect is what happened right before that in the text. And verses 7 through 10 give this amazing, amazing story about how it is that we are supposed to respond. And it says this, it says, now Moses used to take the tent, all right, and he pitched it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp. Now check this, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would rise up and they would each stand at their own doorways and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all of the people would rise up and worship, each at his own door. You see, when we experience the presence of God, there's only one response, and that is worship. 
Now, Rick Warren, he wrote a book several years ago called The Purpose-Driven Life. And he said that anything that we do that brings pleasure to God is an act of worship. Now, for years, I would describe worship this way to kids. I would use this definition. I would say that worship is how I express to God that I love him. How I express to God that I love him. Now, Rick Warren, in his book, he had a, a little bit better definition, right? And some of it's because I'm Baptist and he has three points in it. He says this. He says, worship is expressing our love to God for who he is, for what he said, and what he's doing. For who he is, for what he said, and what he's doing. That's a pretty good definition of worship. And so, for me, that means I can worship in a gathering like this of believers. It means that I can worship in my car. I'm glad that nobody else can hear me when I worship in my car. <laughs> it means that I can worship in my work. Because it's about how I express to God that I love him for the things that he's doing. For the things that he's said to me. And for the ways in which he's impacting my life. Everything that he's doing. And most importantly, for who he is. You know, sometimes though we get confused about worship. And we begin to say things like, you know, that worship really moved me today. Right? I experienced something inside of worship. But worship is not a means to something else, right? It's not a means to experiencing joy. Worship is not a means to make myself feel good about myself. Worship is about encountering the presence of God and bringing pleasure to God. It doesn't matter if it was too loud or if it was too quiet or if I didn't know the songs or if whatever it is that we want to make an excuse about our worship because worship is not about any of those things because worship is about encountering the living God who cares about and wants to know me and he wants to have pleasure from me. That's worship and listen it doesn't matter who's up here leading whether it's Terry leading in the singing or whether it's me in a sermon the purpose of what we're doing is is that we want to help you to encounter the presence of God we want to help you to worship we want to create space for you to be engaged with him. You know, I, uh, I've told you guys this before. I think that I am from Oklahoma, right? And uh, worship, and let me put this point up here on the screen before I go into the story, but worship is not about you, right? And, uh, and earlier, I guess my accent came out because Roy and I were talking earlier and he said, hey, are we talking about worship with an O or are we talking about worship with an A? 
And I was like, I know, it's true. I, when I say it, it's really, you can't tell any different. I can say worship and worship, and you'll never even know which one I'm talking about, right? But as I began to think about that idea this week, I was like, there's not much difference between those two words, worship and worship. Just a single vowel that is different between those two words, an A and an O. An A and an O, which happened to be the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. You ever heard God say that I'm the alpha and the omega? It's the A and the O. And I was like, you know, that's really what happened here in the garden. Is that instead of being last, Adam and Eve stepped forward and put themselves first. You see, worship is not about me. I'm last inside of worship. It's all about putting God first. But a worship, worship is all about me, right? The biggest, the baddest, the most guns take over the world. I'm number one. And it's all of everybody else's last, especially God. As I began to think about that, I was like, you know, I'm guilty of that. That instead of bringing worship to God, I bring worships to God where I'm first and he's last. In fact, I saw a video a couple years ago that I think really illustrates really well what this looks like. And so we're going to watch this video real quick of what maybe the difference between worship and worship looks like. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Then this feeling is gone by Monday. I surrender some. I surrender some. Jesus, I.
sung this song for years It's now a standard here asking the question to all of us that are here, where are you? 
Where are you in the life that I've given you? I'm seeking you. I want a relationship with you. I want to be worshipped by you. I want you to encounter my presence. I want to have that pleasure. It's what I've made you for. Where are you? was a truth that sunk deep into my heart this week. Am I worshiping or am I worshiping? Am I willing to allow myself to encounter the presence of a holy God? That's scary. It's scary because I know who I am. I know what I've been doing with the life that you've given me. And I know that it doesn't all bring you glory and honor. But Father, I don't want my worship to be sunk. So I pray in this moment as Terry comes one more time to just lead us in one more song. Father, that we wouldn't be worshiping, focusing on ourselves, but Father, that we would focus on you and in doing so encounter your presence and bring pleasure to you. In your precious and holy name, my friend.